0: listeners, I'm Nidhi and I'm delighted to welcome you to a special episode of this podcast series brought to you by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University. In conversation today, we have Professor Roger Figuera from the Division of Nutritional Sciences and writer Martin Caparros. Please enjoy.
1: Uh, okay, well, I want to Thank you, Martin, for taking the time to participate in this uh, podcast interview with us. Welcome to the Cornell DNS Program in International Nutrition Podcast, the PIN Podcast. I am a guest interviewer for this episode, and my name is Dr. Roger Figueroa. I am an assistant professor here in the Division of Nutritional Sciences. And I am delighted to share this opportunity to talk more about your career, your work, and its relevance to the work that's occurring here in our in our division. Dear listeners, we are interviewing today Martín Caparros, who is an ADY professor-at-large at Cornell University. Uh, Martín Caparros is a distinguished Argentine author, writer, and a narrative journalist, and one of the fundamental Latin American voices of our time. In 2017, he was awarded the prestigious Maria Moore's Cabot Award by the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism for outstanding reporting on America, specifying work on his nonfiction book, Length, Work, El Hambre, or Hunger, The Moral Crisis of Our Time, published in 2016, an international bestseller about mankind's oldest, most persistent, and most brutal problem, World Hunger. He has written more than 30 books, novels, essays, nonfiction, published in more than 30 countries. His most recent, Nya América, Barcelona, 2021, is a lengthy attempt to describe and analyze the present of Latin America. He was a recipient of the prestigious Herald Prize in 2011 for his novel, Los Living, the Planeta Prize in 2004 for his novel, Balfierno, the Tiziano Terzani, Italy, 2016, and the Caballero Bonal, Spain, 2016, for hunger, and the Guggenheim Fellowship in 1994. He is, quote, Ciudadano Ilustre de la Ciudad de Buenos Aires. His expertise interconnects with a range of cross-disciplinary topics, including inter-American dialogue, food insecurity, and climate change. Martin, thank you for being here. Let me begin with a set of structured questions to shape our conversation today, if I may. Thank you for having me. Of course, wonderful. So my first question to you is quite open. We just want to know more about your career trajectory. Si pudieras hablarnos un poco más sobre tu trayectoria trasfondo fondo de carrera, sería sería genial para nuestros uh, listeners.
0: Bueno, creo que básicamente soy alguien que escribe. Eso que Yo llamaría un escritor si no fuera porque escritor suena tan rimbombante que a veces me da vergüenza definirme como como eso. Pero bueno, he publicado ya una cantidad suficiente de libros como para creer que soy un escritor. Quizás no un buen escritor, pero por lo menos un escritor sí que lo soy. Eh, y, y como escritor a veces, como tú decías recién, escribo ficciones y a veces escribo no ficciones. Eh, Yo creo que mi obra más o menos está dividida en partes iguales, entre novelas y ensayos periodísticos e intentos por, por entender el mundo en que vivimos. En ese sentido, últimamente he trabajado a varios libros que, que van en esa dirección, uno contra el cambio, sobre el cambio climático hace como 15 años, luego el hambre, efectivamente, hace, hace, una, hace unos 10, eh, y América ahora últimamente. Eso es una parte para mí muy importante de mi trabajo, pero bueno, no es tampoco todo mi trabajo, mientras tanto como te decía, sigo escribiendo novelas, sigo escribiendo también columnas en los periódicos, este Eh, estuve un tiempo largo escribiendo una columna para el New York Times, hasta que me peleé un poco con ellos, ahora sigo escribiendo en el país de, de Madrid una columna una columna fija, y, y me interesa nada, tratar de, de entender un poco más sobre el mundo de las maneras que puedo, que es en general a
1: través de palabras. Great. Gracias, Martín, por esa contestación. So Martín answered my first question, which was about telling us a little bit about his career trajectory. At the core of it, Martín identifies himself as a writer and he uh, attests to it in a a way that uh, essentially uh, is represented by his body of work writing uh, uh, so many different types of of, of writing outputs, from fiction to nonfiction. These may include novels and essays and uh, newspaper articles. You know, most notable, he mentioned three of his books, uh, one focused on climate change that he wrote about 15 years ago, his book Hunger, which we have highlighted in in various um, events here at Cornell this week, and his most recent one in America. He, he really thinks that, uh, you know, overall, all of this a uh, purpose, uh, which is learning through words, which is why it, it's so important for him as a writer to, to go by this as he, as he produces the work that he has. So I'm going to go to the second question, and it's about how did you choose your path? ¿Cómo decidiste eh, eh, ir por este camino, eh, eh, decidir a uh, perseguir esta carrera?
0: No, no creo que lo haya decidido nunca ¿eh? creo que ya desde muy chico eh, nada leía leía y leía sin parar y nada me daba más placer que leer pero desde muy chiquito de los cinco años así empecé a leer esas novelas que leían en esa época a los niños eh, novelas de, de salgar Emilio Salgari que eran las historias de Sandocano novelas de Julio Verne que tenían así como grandes inventos que en aquellos tiempos parecían increíbles, como que un hombre fuera la luna o cosas así, y nunca paré de leer, y entonces escribir vino como algo totalmente natural eh, a partir del hecho de que eso, de que relación con el mundo estaba basada en la palabra escrita, y en, ya a los 7 u 8 años empecé a escribir poemas para recitar en la escuela, y creo que nunca más paré de, de escribir, a los 16 trabajaba en un diario en Argentina en ese momento, Un periodista podía empezar muy jovencito y yo acababa de terminar el, el, el bachiller y, y me metí a trabajar en un diario y nunca nunca salí de eso. O sea, no tengo la sensación de que haya habido ningún momento en que yo eligí un camino. Simplemente siempre estuvo ahí. Eh, en el medio estudié Historia porque me interesa la historia. Me tuve que ir de la Argentina en el año 76. Me tuve que exiliar. Tenía 18 años y pasé unos años... Eh, en París, y allí aproveché para estudiar historia, cosa que siempre agradezco porque me da una perspectiva que me interesa sobre el mundo, básicamente sobre el hecho de que las cosas siempre cambian, de que no hay nada que no cambie si algo nos enseña la historia, es eso. Pero más allá de eso, insisto, para contestar a tu pregunta, eh, nunca tuve la impresión, la sensación de haber elegido esto, es, eh, es como que yo soy esto, no no, no, no tuve que en un momento plantearme opciones, lo cual por un lado es casi un privilegio. Sé que mucha gente se pregunta qué haré, qué no haré, cómo, qué voy a hacer de mi vida, etcétera. Es un privilegio sin duda y por otro lado quizás también sea una lástima porque cuántas cosas me perdí de hacer por este, por seguir siempre este mismo camino.
1: Gracias, Martin. Thank you so much for that response. I want for our listeners. To a summary of the response, uh, Martín uh, highlights that he never decided he, you know, as he reflects, he, he remembers that as he was uh, younger and little, he would read a lot, read, read, read without, without really stopping. He would read many stories, many novels, cuentos. And he, he recalls, you know, stories that are very predominant in, in children's literature, such as A Man Walking on the Moon and such. Big picture, he talks about his sort of, he sees his relationship with the world through the written word. And that was, I think, one, one, one huge thing, I think, from, from that response, might He also mentions that, you know, as he was going in his trajectory, when he finishes his early college studies in Argentina, worked directly with newspaper company. You know, then later, you know, he continued sort of in that path of studying history because he was really interested in that. He had to leave Argentina for it, but he still kept essentially engaging with the world in and, and that way because he felt like he never had to choose. It was something that he was. And he, he ended sort of saying that, It feels like a privilege to him because so many people not necessarily have that luxury of being able to find uh, from the get-go something that they are or they can pursue. But at the same time, he also reflects on whether this could have been uh, unfortunate for him because for chasing this thing that he felt it was him, he might have missed on opportunities elsewhere that he never explored. So the next question is, uh, what is your favorite part? ¿Cuál es tu parte favorita de, 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 de tu carrera, de tus, de tus pursuits, de tus actividades? ¿Qué te encanta hacer?
0: La verdad que parece tonto, pero cuando mejor la paso es cuando estoy sentado en mi, mi computador escribiendo, cuando cuando sale bien, digamos. Cuando tengo la sensación de que está funcionando, eh, pocas cosas este, me dan más placer y me entusiasman más que eso. Por supuesto, hay muchas otras cosas. Eh, como como periodista, digamos, o, o autor de libros periodísticos, he podido viajar por o sea, un centenar de países, he podido conocer lugares absolutamente interesantes y desconocidos para mí, y sobre todo he tenido muchas veces el privilegio de que mucha gente me contara su vida, cosa que es algo que yo siempre agradezco, que alguien... Eh, se siente conmigo y se tome el tiempo y me tenga la confianza necesaria como para pasarse unas horas contándome quién es, cómo vive, porque me parece que vivimos en mundos demasiado encapsulados, demasiado aislados, eh, en que creemos que todos viven igual porque solo vemos gente que vive como nosotros y el mundo está tan lleno de, de diferencias, de variantes, que eh, a mí me importa mucho poder salir por ahí, y encontrarlas escucharlas saber que hay otras cosas eso es una parte que también me da mucho placer y seguramente hay otras pero insisto si tuviera que definir una sería sentarme y escribir algo que me que me parezca que está que, que, que está funcionando digamos. gracias
1: gracias no gracias por esa contestación thank you so much I'm gonna summarize in English for our listeners um, he thinks his favorite is really sitting in front of a computer writing and writing something that he thinks is is good, that he, he thinks is ready to be you know shared and comprehended by those who, who are able to read it. In this case, it would be him. He also thinks that his, his experience as a journalist enabled him to travel to know places. That, to him, was really important because he believes that well, let me add something else to the, the 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 opportunity to travel and, and know places. He also, in those opportunities, had a chance to really connect with people that would tell them more about their lives. And he thinks that's incredibly important and he values it very much, particularly because he believes that we live in in a world that's a siloed, it almost as if we were... Uh, not well connected as a world. And so with all these different variants that exist, he thinks that having had the privilege to know places, but also have people who would tell them uh, their stories uh, really enriched him with the knowledge that he has today. And there are others that he says could be highlighted here, but he thinks probably the number one is sitting in front of his computer writing. Okay, so... I'm going to move into a set of questions related to your book, uh, El Hambre, or Hunger. And I'm going to revisit, you know, something that I, I, I was able to participate in your coffee chat on Tuesday. There was a question about your motivation for writing Hunger, and I, I almost uh, wonder if it's okay with you to share your motivation uh, around writing Hunger. ¿Cuál, ¿Cuál fue tu motivación para escribir el libro de el Hambre? Mira, como contaba el otro día,
0: eh, yo durante cinco años así trabajé para el Fondo de Población de Naciones Unidas, haciendo algo que me resultaba muy interesante, porque cada año tenía que ir a 10 o 12 países a buscar 10 o 12 historias de jóvenes en relación con un problema principal, digamos. ¿eh? Un año fueron las migraciones, otro año el cambio climático, otro año la salud sexual y reproductiva y demás. Y, y en esos viajes que me llevaron, como te decía, a lugares muy inesperados, eh, tenía la sensación de que había una constante que siempre estaba allí como en segundo plano, que era el hecho de que mucha de esa gente que tenía esos problemas que, que yo estaba contando, no comía suficiente, pasaba hambre. Eh, yo no había tenido esa, esa evidencia tan clara hasta ese momento. Entonces empecé a insistir ahí en el fondo de población en que por lo menos uno de esos años hiciéramos nuestro foco en el tema del hambre. Y al final ellos nos dijeron que por las diferencias internas y divisiones de Naciones Unidas no lo, íbamos, no lo íbamos a poder hacer. Y a mí me pareció que valía la pena intentar Eso, como te decía, poner en primer plano eso que siempre está en segundo plano, eso que siempre está al fondo, es esta idea de bueno tratar de hablar de eh, el, el, el gran elefante que hay en todas nuestras habitaciones y que conseguimos no mirar, que es el hecho de que eh, en un mundo que está preparado para alimentar a todos sus habitantes, hay todavía casi mil millones de personas que no comen suficiente. Eh, es algo... Uh, que debería uh, horrorizarnos todo el tiempo y lo cual sin embargo vivimos bastante confortablemente,
1: ¿no? gracias por eso uh, thank you so much martin I'm gonna summarize briefly his response mm. so he was talking about an experience that he had reporting in, in multiple countries and uh, there were uh, you know a set of different priority areas or topics or subjects that were discussed from uh, migration, climate change to sexual health. But he was noticing that there was n- notable images of, of hunger uh, in the places that he would visit. And he he never thought that it was something that uh, was a part of this type of, uh, of effort. And he wanted to put it at the forefront, particularly because he felt like it was always kept in a second plane, but he needed to put it in a first plane because it was so obvious and it's affecting so many people. He almost felt like it was like the elephant in the room. And it's it's so important to touch on one last point that it, it should be a problem that should be horrifying to all of us. He didn't feel like he was getting as much attention.
0: Sí, a ver, eh, la idea principal es que es esto que te decía. Hubo un momento que yo llamo el, el momento histórico más importante que la historia no ha registrado, que es, Alrededor de los años setentas u 80s, gracias a los avances técnicos que hubo en las técnicas agrarias, sobre todo, la humanidad por primera vez en su historia fue capaz de alimentar a todos sus miembros, a, todos, a toda su población. Que sea capaz de hacerlo no quiere decir que lo haga, no lo hace, pero sí durante milenios estaba, acá, estaba la excusa de que no sabíamos ¿Cómo producir suficiente comida para que todos los que necesitaban pudieran comerla? Ahora sí sabemos. Entonces ya no tenemos esa excusa. Y eh, el hecho de que, insisto, haya mil millones de personas casi que no comen lo que necesitan es pura vergüenza porque podríamos solucionarlo. Tenemos los medios técnicos para solucionarlo. O sea, el problema del hambre no es técnico. Es político, es económico, es social. Y eso fue lo que yo quise contar en este libro, quise entenderlo.
1: Si quieres traducir Sí, sí, libro. sí. Um, uh, that's, that's, muchas gracias, Martín, seguro. So Martín wants to also add that the, the principal idea is that there was a historic moment around the 1970s, to 1980s, approximately, where there were these technological advances. That would allow, you know, would allow humanity would allow for food to be available to our population. And now he felt like there was an irony there, where you know, e- even though they were perhaps capable of, at that point, it didn't necessarily mean that we were able to accomplish so. So we had the capacity, but not really uh, were able to uh, alleviate hunger and have not been able to do that. And so now that we know, he felt like it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that we couldn't have done, or, or it's a shame, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that we, at, at such a point, we couldn't have figured out ways in which we could alleviate hunger, or solve hunger. And so he thinks that this is not a problem that's technical, because now we know that we're capable. The problem is uh, political, economic, and social. And therefore, he cared deeply about writing about this, using this frame.
0: Sí, y entonces, uh, ahí tuve que empezar a pensar, que había decidido trabajar de esto, cómo hacer para hacer un libro sobre el hambre en el mundo, que parece un cliché absoluto, parece un lugar común, este, algo sobre lo que este, no hay mucho que decir, más allá de lamentarlo. Y, y llegué en ese momento a dos conclusiones, que es que, por un lado, no existe el hambre, sino personas que no comen suficiente, eh, que es muy distinto, y que quería tratar de escuchar y conocer a esas personas, algunas de esas personas que me contaran cómo es no tener comida para hoy o para mañana, y decidí viajar a varios lugares donde eh, esto sucede para escucharlos y para entender este, por qué sucedía porque la segunda parte del asunto es que creo que entendí que no existe el hambre, una vez más, sino mecanismos que hacen que las personas no coman suficiente. Y entonces yo quería no solo escuchar a estas personas, sino entender al mismo tiempo cuáles son esos mecanismos por los cuales no conseguían, no consiguen la comida que, que necesitan. Y pensé que bueno, que en esa interacción de estas dos corrientes se podía armar un libro que al mismo tiempo te mostrara cómo es esa situación pero que te intentara ayudar a entender por qué se produce.
1: Gracias Martín. I'm going to summarize that uh, next edition from Martín One of the additional aspects of the book is really, uh, as he was trying to understand hunger in the world, he thought of two domains that were key here in his writing of this book is one that hunger does not exist. What exists is individuals who do not eat enough. And for him, that personhood element uh, was extremely important. And it's what drove him to travel to so many places to visit people who were actually not eating enough, to really understand what were they really going through. And the second domain is really understanding that hunger does not exist. What exists are mechanisms or factors that uh, make you know, make individuals shape their inability to eat enough. He thought that in these two ways, he had a frame to really not just show what the problem was about, but perhaps help understand what what is causing and how we may be able to fix it and addre- address it. I want to end with two more questions, if that's okay. Sure. The next question is, and I think you, you already touched briefly upon this because of your explanation and, and the foundations for your book and motivations behind your book, Hunger. But I'm going to read this quote, and I, I do want to ask you if you may elaborate on the importance of these statements. In your book, you say, quote, we know hunger. We're used to hunger. We feel hungry two or three times a day. There's okay. nothing more frequent, more constant, more present in our lives than hunger. And yet for most of us, there's nothing further removed from us than real hunger. But the distance between repetitions, daily hunger, one that is satisfied daily and repeatedly, and the desperate hunger that is never satisfied in an entire, is an entire world. Hunger has always been the force behind social change, technical progress, revolutions, counter revolutions. Nothing has had a greater influence on human history. No illness. No war has killed so many people. There's no plague as lethal and at the same time as avoidable as hunger. I, I don't know. I felt like in some ways, if you could elaborate on that statement, and because I think it's so powerful, so many of us who really are far removed from sometimes what we study, what we want to, what we want to solve, and so. Sí. Bueno, yo creo
0: que de, de encontrar las maneras de solucionarlo, ¿no? Uh, y hablábamos del hecho de que es el mayor problema solucionable que el mundo tiene, porque realmente no es, es algo que se puede solucionar con solo tener la voluntad de hacerlo. Eh, si ahora hay tanta gente que no come suficiente, es porque la producción de alimentos en el mundo no está pensada para alimentar a todos, sino para que se enriquezcan los que... Eh, los que producen esos alimentos y los que los comercializan, entonces lo que hacen es producir aquello que los mercados ricos esperan, porque es donde van a ganar más dinero. ¿no? Eh, o sea, es solucionable si que consiguiéramos cambiar esa esa base a partir de la cual se producen los alimentos, que no fuera ya en tan eh, solamente el provecho de sus dueños, sino el bien común de que nadie hace hambre. Ahora bien, ¿por qué no lo hacemos? Y esa es el, 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 la, la, la gran pregunta que tiene que ver con, con lo que decías tú recién, ¿te parece? Que es que, para decirlo muy sintéticamente, porque el hambre no es nuestro problema. Cuando digo nuestro, estoy hablando de, bueno, la gente más o menos privilegiada, que eso, pasamos hambre tres veces por día y vamos a la nevera y sacamos algo y qué hambre tenía y ya se pasó. Quiero decir, eh, así como, por ejemplo, los movimientos ecologistas consiguieron eh, movilizar a muchísima gente, 50 si, años, porque eh, consiguieron con razón convencernos de que los daños en el ecosistema nos perjudicaban a todos, el problema del hambre no consigue nunca la misma energía porque es algo que le sucede a gente lejana, que no conocemos, que no nos importa mucho, y que sabemos que no nos va a tocar a nosotros mismos. Es como el grado más extremo del egoísmo de la humanidad. No solucionar un problema que podría solucionar porque, bueno, porque la gente a la que le eh, afecta ese problema no le importa
1: a, a muchos otros, ¿no? Thank you, Martin. Gracias por esa respuesta. I'm going to briefly summarize his response. And he connected his response to uh, our previous questions, which is around the solutions or potential solutions that we could find for hunger, because he does feel like it could be solved. It's really about having the will to want, want to solve it. He made reference to the production of foods. When we have the degree of food production that we have in the world, but has a goal of, it's not to feed people. It's really meant to be commercialized for profit. And when you have such a goal, it could be considered, but unfortunately it's for the benefit of, you know, individuals with capital and not a overall global well-being, a common good. Uh, it's, it's not seen as a consideration because the common good is not prioritized. I'm going to also say that Martin elaborated on a rhetoric question, which is, why don't we do it? Why don't we solve it? And he responds to his own question, which is, because it's not our problem. And What he means by that is that it's not the problem of those who are not in those situations. He made a comparison with ecological movements and how in in that space, there's been efforts and activism that has actually moved uh, the conversation a little bit over years. But on the opposite side, hunger activists do not necessarily get that same or hunger movements do not necessarily get the same type of, of result, particularly because it affects so few of us or or other people that are not us that, uh, you know, it dis- disengages other folks from doing anything. He, he also considers that this doesn't receive the, the same support because there's a high degree of extreme egoismo there's a there's a there's an extreme degree of selfishness in in our humanity particularly when a problem like this is not affecting us i know we're at the top of this and i had so many questions so i only have one last thing that i want to talk about i'm going to shift gears from hunger i want to talk about one of your um, opinion articles in el país Mm -hmm. uh, about la gripe Given the the last two years of COVID-19, I thought that when I read that column, you know, it made me sort of, you know, reflect on 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 the issue where we are after two years of at least two years from when it affected us here in the United States. So I'm gonna turn to that recent article, La Gripe. You make reference to this term uh, in a recent column for the newspaper El País in Spain. There is a brief tie to the current pandemic circumstances and I thought it might be relevant to discuss. Uh, Could you expand on what you meant to communicate with such article? And in particular, uh, I thought this quote uh, stood out to me and it's this core idea. La gripe era una amenaza y ahora es una aspiración. The flu was a threat and now it's an aspiration. So perhaps talk a little bit about what, the motivation behind that and what what does it mean.
0: Era, esto fue escrito hace no sé, tres cuatro semanas o una cosa así eh, en un momento en que en España se hablaba eh, en España que es donde yo vivo se hablaba de eh, gripalizar, decían exactamente, gripalizar la pandemia. Eh, ya la palabra gripalizar me pareció horrible, pero más allá del problema de la palabra, el concepto eh, eh, me, me llamó la atención y por eso escribí esa columna, que es eh, este, cómo nos resignamos a cosas que nos que, que quizás hace algún tiempo nos parecían intolerables. ¿no? Porque la idea esa de de convertir el COVID en una gripe y de pensar que que una gripe es es algo tolerable, aceptable, es algo más o menos bueno, este, bueno choca con el hecho de que la gripe es un problema grave, es una amenaza, etcétera, etcétera. Pero frente a esta situación insoportable que vivimos en los dos últimos años, nos parece que esa, eh, esa especie de negociación nos permite vivir un poco mejor. Y me pareció como una una buena muestra y una metáfora de cómo estamos encarando en los últimos años la mayoría de nuestros problemas. O sea, como resignándonos, como aceptando el mal menor, lo que en castellano se llama el mal menor, en lugar de tener la ambición de buscar el el bien mayor. Y este me pareció muy claramente un, un ejemplo de eso ¿no? de cómo nos seguimos resignando y resignando y resignando en algún momento vamos a tener que parar este, porque de algún modo me hace acordar a una vieja historia de un señor que lo encerraron en una jaula con un león y entonces decía para que el león no me coma bueno me voy a cortar una mano y se la voy a tirar y después este para que no me coma me voy a cortar un brazo y se lo voy a tirar y después un pie y después una pierna Y para que no se lo comiera, le tiró todo su cuerpo al león, digamos. Es este, esa es como una forma extrema de la resignación que me da la sensación de que eh, es lo que estamos viviendo en estos últimos años. Nos faltan eh, ambiciones y proyectos para poder pensar y desear un mundo mejor, un mundo que valga la pena y no simplemente un mundo que no esté tan tan mal,
1: digamos. I'll summarize that last response. Martín's motivation for that article about la gripe stems from a phrase that was being used in the country he resides, which is Spain, about gripalizar, or uh, a fluing, if you will. I don't know if that, that word's been used here before, but fluing the pandemic, fluing COVID-19. And it made him think, is how do we sort of uh, draw from things that once upon a time were intolerable. We wouldn't have, you know, really accepted such a term when it was affecting so many people uh, when it actually did. So the fact that it was now being used, he he almost felt like it was this sort of negotiation between having something that could be, you know, so good or something that could be less bad. And he he thinks that it's sort of Heroes Towers going for. Things that are not too bad, not worst case scenario. There was also something, th- this notion of resignation, which is giving up, right? Giving up to the current forces that are affecting us and sort of like, okay, h- how do we, instead of going for something that's not too bad or not worst case scenario, could we pursue something much better? Could we be more ambitious uh, towards the things that actually have maximized the greater good? And he lastly remembers an old story about a man and a, and a lion being inside a cage. And that uh, the strategy for the man in that story is that he kept providing with body parts in order to feed the lion so the lion wouldn't eat them. And, it turns out that ultimately ended up, you know, feeding him, you know, feeding himself to the lion as a whole once he ran out. So so it's kind of like thinking beyond, you know, just bare minimums and I guess uh, not so bad, not worst case scenario situations and be more ambitious about the solutions that we want to uh, be able to identify for overcoming this pandemic. Um, I hope that that does the best job I could, but I'm going to end here because I know we're out of time. Uh, Martin. Thank you so much for being here with us. I enjoyed your visit and and getting to know you. And uh, we wish you best of luck in the next stage of your work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Gracias.
0: Dear listeners, we hope you enjoyed this special episode of the PIN podcast. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening. And many thanks to Elena Kirky for our theme music.